So we know if you uh, have been with us that we this is our second week with Samson. Uh, we are going to look at Judges 14 uh, through 15:20. And so last week when we were in chapter 13, we know that Israel had done evil in the sight of the Lord, and as a result, they were subject to captivity for 40 years. And if you kind of think about the history of Israel, you realize like there was a generation. Uh, that spent 40 years in the wilderness, and then there arose a new generation. And it was kind of a restart, and as a result, God repeated the law to them. So I think it's important that you have to understand, and just consider in your own life, uh, I turned 40 this year, and I was born in 1976. So if from 1976 to this point, I had only known being uh, in a country that had somehow some other country in the world had overtaken us and I had only known living in that state of bondage, do you think I would know much about freedom? Would I even, I mean, would I understand that? And let's say I had grown up in a family that lacked courage and grit and a desire for a day when victory would come, would I know much about freedom? The reality is, I probably wouldn't. I would have grown up learning to live with it. And some of you, if you look over your life and you think, there's times where maybe there's this particular sin, and maybe it's your sin, and your family has learned to live with it. They're just living with it because they don't really know what to do about it. And so if you're really arrogant, if you're spouting off at the mouth, if you fly off the handle, if you, they don't know anything different than that. And so they grow up thinking that it's normal for you to be that way. And they live with it. It's just the way dad is. That's just the way mom is. They live with it. They know no different. Israel finds itself in a place where they're so entrenched in bondage that they've stopped longing or even forgotten what it was like to be free. Earlier in Judges, the people are crying out for deliverance. Now they're dwelling in, in, in this state of bondage and really not longing to get out of it. Their apathy has led to apostasy, and now it's so much a part of their life that at the very end of Judges, the emphasis will be on anarchy. There is no king. There is no God. And you see that spiral downward as the culture becomes more and more uh, insensitive to the things of God. I don't really, like when I go to sleep at night, once I'm out, unless I'm woke up, like I woke up the other, while we were on our vacation, I woke up one morning at like four in the morning because one of the guys that I grew up with, he and his father got into a gunfight in my dream. And his dad ended up having to cut him down. And I was like, this is horrendous. You know, I wake up, you know, but like alarm clocks do not usually like have as much effect on me, especially, I don't know, I'll go through like seasons of that and I'm a pretty heavy sleeper and Anna will like 
my alarm clock will be, my alarm goes off, Anna kicks me after a few seconds. I'll be like, oh, you know, I often wonder, like, somebody could design something, alarm clock that punches you, shocks you, all that kind of stuff. I would pay whatever price. But it's one of those things where you become, they've become so insensitive to the deafening, like, voices. The alarm is not going off. It's like when you continue to sin, the scripture talks about your conscience being seared. It means all those nerves that would naturally say, no, don't keep like touching that. It's hot. I don't know if you ever hurt yourself in some way where you did not, could not feel a particular portion of your hand. And so as a result, like it could be like on fire and it didn't like, you wouldn't know it. It's kind of that deal. It's almost like they're in the state of, they've been in the state so long that they can't even, they don't even can't hear it. They don't hear the alarm anymore. They're not woken up anymore. It's kind of where they are. So really, I spent a little time on that because I think it's very important to understand Israel had become so insensitive to the promises of God that they had become deaf to the alarm that should have been ringing in their ears. It's a frightening place to be. Early part of Judges, the judge kind of is raised up and the people, in a way, rally around the judge. Here, they're going to bind the judge and send him to the enemy. Again, we're seeing this spiral downward. Not only have the people been in this kind of place, but the the individual judge seems to appear in that way in that he enjoys acting alone in a way. Maybe because he's so self-centered and he enjoys the attention or whatever it might be. Another might be that just to deal with Samson on a level of of being around him, he rejected all rules of God or men. He was out for his own glory. And so it made him very hard to be a leader. Have you ever noticed, like, it, it is easy to lead a small group of people, but as the people grow in number, it's more difficult if you like to be the Lone Ranger. If you like to be the one that everybody says, oh, we always need them to step in and save the day. If you love that kind of thing, Samson type world, then it makes it very difficult for you to work with other great people around you. And I think Samson is kind of that Lone Ranger picture, and he's not embracing a, a, a bigger idea of what this is all about. It's for the glory of God and the good of others, but for him, it was for Samson. And I think you see that throughout this study. Now, just by way of reminder, he was both called to be a deliverer from the, his very inception and a Nazarite. So his mother had certain things that she had to do to protect him from being defiled in any way. The Nazarite vow had three distinct prohibitions. One, they were not to drink wine or any intoxicating beverage or vinegar or raisins or anything to do with a grape, it, it appears. 
They were not to cut their hair, and they were not to go near a dead body. There were these three things. Most people, if they took a Nazarite vow, they took it uh, when they were um, like maybe older and said, for a period of time, maybe two years, I'm going to take this vow and set aside or consecrate this time for the Lord. He had it from his birth, and it was to go throughout his whole life. Now, Samson's life, when you look at it, You look at Israel, you look at Samson, it is like Samson's life is a parable that would demonstrate what Israel was like. Completely desensitized to the distinct role that he, as God's chosen vessel, was to play. That's kind of what Israel was like. Forgotten who they were as God's people. So, as a church today... If you were to stop and say, what do I do with this story? As a church today, we need to know that we can be sensitive to the Lord's calling as recipients and agents of deliverance by following a few principles here. Because I don't want us to walk away. I want you to look at this story and go, we don't want to do that. So we need to know that we can do different. We can act differently But first we have to say, one, then we have to pursue a holy life. It's one thing we'd have to do. Samson doesn't do that. Israel is not doing that, but we have to pursue a holy life. Second, we must be sensitive to God's plans for us individually and corporately. So that we're constantly thinking, not just about us, but all of us as we move forward, thinking about what is the vision that God has for his people? And how are we to live that out? Third, we need to seek to bring glory to God and serve others. It's not about us. And that's so difficult in an individualistic culture that we grow up in. Sometimes as Americans, and I think it's hard for us to understand this, but you have to understand, if some people in other parts of the world were reading the Scripture for them, they would be confronted on one level. For us reading the Scripture as a nation or a people in the West... We have to think we're so individualistic, it's hard for us to think corporately. And so we have to think, okay, we are about the glory of God in the service of others. Fourth thing that I would say that we need to do to understand that we can be like these agents of deliverance in the lives of others is recognize that in spite of us, he is faithful to his promises. Sometimes that's just at the end of the day, you have to say, good night. So often I fail in the role that God has. For me to play. I, I just I have to rest in his grace that he is faithful when I am unfaithful. Okay, so let's go. Judges 14, we'll scan through this, come back to those things and look at them uh, together. Notice in verse 1 it says, Samson went down. If you were doing what I often do is look for repetition in a passage, if you're looking for that, that phrase went down is mentioned, I think, four times. He went down. He went down. It's very much like what you saw with Jonah as he goes down, 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 down into the belly of a well, right? It's just, it's kind of that deal. It's, it's a way of saying, helping that you stop and consider. He is moving in the wrong way. He's going in a downward spiral, if you will. He goes down to Timnah. 
he goes down to the daughters of the or to the Philistines and he sees one of the daughters of the Philistines and he decides he wants to marry this daughter of the Philistines. He goes to his parents and says, I want to marry her. His father and mother said, could you not choose someone among our relatives? Now you say, that's weird. If you don't read the Bible, haven't read the Bible very much. You might say, well, th- that is really strange. Like one of his cousins? I mean, that's not right. Well, it's not... If you, if you understand in the context of Israel, and I don't fully understand all of that, how all that worked out, but they were to stay within their tribe. And then they make the, the suggestion, like, even if you couldn't find someone within our tribe, could, could you at least have those among the circumcised? That means among the covenant family of God, among the covenant nation among those whom God has chosen from all the nations of the earth to be His people, could you, could, could you at least like choose someone in this way? Now, what we have to understand is that this was not just something His parents were suggesting because they liked people that maybe spoke their same language or what, you know, whatever you might say. Or we like people from the same area. You know, it's good for East Texas people to stay with East Texas people. It's not... It's not like that. It, it is God was calling them to this because he knew what would take place if they did not follow his way. He was calling them to stay within the family of God. I mean, that's really what he's calling them to. And so God prohibits them to marry outside of the family of God. And you see that in multiple different places. So first thing is here that you see about Samson. One is he wasn't to be doing the choosing anyway in that culture. Ultimately, it was his parents. And I guess you could say in the final kind of picture, it would be his father. So he's not doing what is right. And again, you could just mark this, Joshua 23, 11 through 13. God speaks of the dangers of them doing this. Now, the second thing is, is that this bride was from the daughter of the Philistines. And here's the thing. His parents knew that God said, he's going to deliver us from the Philistines. How could he make an alliance with them? Just doesn't make sense. You know, for them, it's like, how is he going to be a deliverer? And now he's aligning himself with them. He's kind of doing what Israel has done. Let's just entrench ourselves in the life of these people, the Philistines. Samson will not listen. He said, she is right in my own eyes. Now, What's the deal with that? You might say, well, he found her attractive. And, and that may be in part true, and, and I think it is. But, but I think it's more than that. At the end of the book, we're getting really close to it in Judges, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It, it's kind of this thing of like, they, they were rejecting King God, their God, who was king. They're rejecting him. They're doing their own thing. It's a sign of a rebellion at a greater level uh, than, than, as we'll see, I guess you could say, later. 
One author states, with brilliant irony, the narrator describes a free spirit, a rebel driven by selfish interests, doing whatever he pleases without any respect for his parents and with no respect for the claims of God on his life. But in the process, he ends up doing the will of God. That's what's so crazy. You're like, how does that work? How, how do we deal with that? I mean, that, that's shocking. But look at verse 4. His father and mother did not know it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So it's not like you, you know, it's a difficult thing to deal with, but it's, it, you could say this rebel and his rebellious spirit in the grander scheme of things is a part of the decree of God to bring about what God wants to accomplish. That's hard for us to grasp. And sometimes we have to say, I don't understand it, and I don't understand how sin fits within the plan of God completely, our sin even, but I have to reckon with that because, for instance, when Jesus was placed on the cross and Peter is speaking about that, he says, this happened by the predestined plan of God. But that didn't mean those people were not still rebellious in rejecting Jesus. It's the struggle we have to face, the tension that we live in. Verses 5 through 7, Then Samson went down again uh, with his father and mother to Timnah. And at some point, evidently, they kind of split up. Whether Samson was kind of running along and said, I'm just going to beat them there. I just can't wait to see this Philistine girl. And he takes off. We don't know that. Evidently, they were moving together. But ultimately, what's about to happen, his parents did not see. And so as he's going along, going through a vineyard, you're like, a vineyard? Are you serious, Samson? Like, you're supposed to stay away from grapes, you know? And anything associated with that, what are you doing? He doesn't take his Nazarite vow very seriously, as we'll see throughout. Anyway, he's moving through this vineyard. A lion steps out and roars at him. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He grabs the lion and he tears the lion to pieces. It's it's a shocking picture of the power this man had. He possessed, again, given by God. And God, like, rushes upon him by the Spirit and he does this amazing thing. One of the things about this, though, is there's no kind of emphasis when he tears this lion to pieces. Now he's in contact with something that has died. There is no emphasis here on him going through some ritual cleansing. He just moves on forward. Again, too, like just the nature of Samson, you kind of think he would be a bragger, kind of, you know, like telling everybody how awesome he was. So you'd think he would tell his parents, but he doesn't say that again. I think, again, in providence, I think God is watching over him, protecting him in a way so that he could bring about what he wanted to accomplish. Verses 8 and 9, after some days, he returned uh, to take um, this woman. He goes down, evidently goes back home. Now he's coming again. He turns aside to the carcass of the lion. Again, one of those things where like, okay, Samson, we understand you had to kill the lion, but why would you return to a dead animal when you know you're supposed to stay away from that kind of thing? Why would you do that? But Samson does it. Uh, when he goes there, he finds bees. Uh, so he's kind of, again, tested here because he could have kind of walked by the lion and been like, I'm staying away from it. But instead, he reaches down into the carcass of the lion 
and pulls out honey, which is kind of a shocking little thing. But it, it's, he scrapes out honey out of the cavity of this corpse and eats it. One author said his response is triply sinful. An Israelite would have left it alone. A Nazarite would surely have done so. And finally, he goes to his parents and he hands them some of it. This guy also noted his parents had sanctified him as a child, but now he desecrates them. Again, you're seeing him. Just to understand the story as it unfolds, you need to see him in light of his relationship with Israel. He is a man of Israel in all the senses. He is like her, like her rebel spirit. He acts like Israel. He pictures them. He's a parable of Israel in a sense. Verse 10, his father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there for so the young men used to do. Now you might say, hey, that's cool. Like this is like something that they normally did. And I would say, yeah, I think it was something normal. They had a long kind of period of time for a feast. But from what I understand, this term in its context would be focused on a seven-day kind of drinking bout. It's hard to see that in the text, but from what I understand just from reading some of the the thoughts on the way this term is used throughout different uh, other pieces of literature, you understand it was really a thing where immorality would be prevalent during this feast. Samson is not this, this man that you would think He should be, of course, because he was a Nazarite. He seems to reject that completely. Now, in verse 11, when he comes there for this feast, they put 30 companions with him. Now, it doesn't really, I don't think they're like his buddies. I think they were nervous about him because he was who he was, and they were watching him. And so they bring together, really, in a sense, it's almost like 30 bodyguards. It's almost like they're bringing together someone to um, be prepared, if needed, to fight him. Now, as we observed in verse 4, God's using this situation of Samson's to bring about trouble. And I think you kind of say trouble is starting to kind of come together. And Samson, probably really not aware, wants to toy with these people. Now, what I mean by that is like he may be unaware of what all that God is doing. But in his arrogance, he's even though he's in hostile territory and likely a lot of drinking going on, he decides to add something to the excitement. He decides to actually like come to them and say, listen, I want to give you a riddle. Let's play a game together. Let's make a wager. I, I, I kind of really like playing cards, if you will. I, I want to, let's do this together and see what might happen. If you can answer my riddle, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot, you're going to give me 30. So he's going to give this riddle to them, and um, there's absolutely no way that they would be able to answer this riddle. I mean, it's it's perfect, because you would have to have been there to ever answer the riddle. Um, Now, some of you might say, I know somebody told me recently here that they'd gotten rid of a lot of their clothes that they didn't need or whatever, but most of us have closets that are bulging, right, with just stuff. 
Some of you might say, I have 30 shirts in my closet that I could probably get rid of, and it would still leave me with a bulging closet. Some of you might say that about pants, about jackets. I mean, you could just... So for you, you might say, not a big deal. Even if you didn't have that, and you had to go to Walmart, swipe the card, and get them, it might, like, stress you out for a little while, and you'd kind of figure it out. It's not that way in this culture. In this culture, people didn't have multiple sets of clothes. You might have a couple of sets of clothes. This is a major wager. This is something that, like, would require... I mean, really, only a king would have something like this in this state. So, they make the deal. And on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, after not being able to answer the riddle, they go to Samson's wife and says, you entice this man or we're going to burn you and your father's house. And these guys are ruthless. Like, we are going... I mean, basically... Your whole family is going to die if you don't get this riddle out of him. So she starts to wear on Samson. She goes after him. And she approaches him by saying, you only hate me. You do not love me. I mean, like it's like, oh my goodness. Are you serious? Are you bringing that argument? I don't know. Some of you may argue that way. Bring the most, I mean, like push it to the highest level possible, the most insane thing, and say, if you really loved me, I mean, you've heard people do that. And that is kind of what is taking place. So she keeps pressing him and pressing him and pressing him. What's interesting is he says to her, I haven't even said anything to my father and mother, which again would add fuel to the fire to me, you know. She gets the answer, which is one of those things you see in Samson's life. He's going to be pressed again by a woman in that way. She gets the answer. She tells the men of the city. They wait to the very end. They explain the riddle. And he says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. What a shocking way to respond. I would not use that. Like, that's not a cool thing to say to your wife or what you might say soon-to-be wife. He says this and addresses that issue, and he gets, of course, angry. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. He goes down 20 miles to this town. He kills 30 men, takes their clothes, and then travels back 20 miles and drops them off. And then he goes to his father's house. While he is gone, Samson's wife is given to his companion, his so-called best man. So, two things stand out to me in this part of the text. Samson is disrespectful of his parents, callous towards his Nazarite vow. Um, he doesn't really have loyalty to his own people. He compromises ethically. He's rude to his wife. He's flippant with his tongue. He's driven by lust and appetite. He is not someone you would want to, again, to model. The only thing that could really come good from this man is by Yahweh overpowering him by his spirit, 
It's the only way you're going to get anything good out of his situation. He would not be a deliverer had not the Spirit of God kept moving upon him. So it's interesting. I think we need to see him as he really is. God, also, just one other thing. You, could, you should recognize like this picture, again, that relationship between Israel and Samson and how closely they seem to be tied together. Okay, verse 1. Let's go. We move on to chapter 15. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson goes uh, back to his wife with a goat. He's kind of coming back. He's settled down. I'm going to bring this to her. It's going to soften her heart. My heart's softened. I'm looking forward to it. He gets there. The dad says, hey, you can't come in. Uh, I thought you were so mad at her. You hated her. You didn't want anything to do with her. You were never coming back. I gave him, uh, I mean, I gave her away. But I'll make it up to you. I'll give you her sister who's even prettier. Like, I'll, I'll make that up. Samson gets extremely angry. He says, now I'll be innocent of what I'm about to do. He does something that you're like, come I mean, I don't even understand how it works. But he runs down 300 foxes. He runs them down. He takes torches. He ties their tails together, sticks the torch in between the tie, I guess you could say, and sets them loose. It was the time of harvest, and so they run throughout the fields, and it destroys... All the crops for the year in an agrarian society, basically all of your, your like means to provide for your family for the year. He, he sets all of that on fire. As a result, the people, the Philistine men come together and say, why did he do this? What's he doing? And they find out what happens with the dad. And so they set that man's house on fire and the daughter and it's like this fiasco that takes, takes place. Samson responds by saying, if this is what you do in verse 7, I swear I will, avenge, I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. Again, Samson is not that worried about deliverance for Israel. He is worried about himself, right? Then I'll quit. He's not going to say, I'm going to attack and take these people down and destroy them. He is just angry. He's going to address it. And then he's just going to go hide. That's kind of basically what he says. So the Philistines decide we've got to go get him. And they come to Judah and they're about to make war against Judah. Now, you might think, and by the way, if you've been reading Judges, you realize that Judah all along is always saying, we want to be involved in all these battles. We want glory. We want to make sure that we're aligned with the judge. We want to make sure everybody knows how awesome we are in battle and we can fight. Well, when this happens and the Philistines come to bind them, the Judahites would rather take the judge and deliver him over than stand up and fight alongside him. In a right frame of mind, you think they would go to Samson and say, Samson, are you ready? Let's go take care of these Philistines once and for all. But instead, they had become so entrenched in bondage, so entrenched in their sin, so at this place where the promises of God had become like not even clear to them anymore, not even longing for these things anymore, 
So, these 3,000 men, in verse 11, went to find Samson. Samson was really more fearful of them than he was the Philistines. And they promised they wouldn't do him any harm, and so they tied him up with new ropes and took him down to meet the Philistines. When he got there, guess what happened? Spirit of the Lord moves. And he takes the jawbone of a donkey and kills a thousand men. He names that place Jawbone Hill as a reminder of what had taken place. We only see Samson pray, or we, I guess you could say for the very first time we see him pray, his prayer is for his thirst, not for anything else. Just, Lord, I'm so thirsty, I'm going to die after I've done all this work. Give me something to drink. He's a very, like, secularly-minded man. He only thinks about himself. Very little concern for the fate of his people or the work that is yet to be done, let alone the glory of God. He prays purely for personal comfort. Now, let's go back. Think about where we are as a church and as an individual. Your life, where you are where I am, what we, try and, what we need to deal with here. I, I think we can be, and we need to be reminded of this over and over, sensitive to the Lord's calling as recipients and agents of reconciliation in the following four ways. First, instead of walking the way of Samson, we should pursue a holy life. We, we really should be serious about holiness not like Israel who seems to kind of easily move back and forth between following the Lord. They just kind of don't really focus on His rules and His ways. And, and they don't see the value of them. That God's ways are good for us. What He describes to us as the good kind of life is actually the good life. We need to focus on holiness. We are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of a holy life. That's what, that is what Timothy was told by Paul. You need to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Why did he say that? Because he knew that sometimes we discipline ourselves for a thousand other things, but when it comes to the purpose of godliness, we don't do that. We, we, we might be the most disciplined people in the world about every other thing but godly things. Second, We need to be sensitive to His plans for us individually and corporately. The Scripture says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So we have to be sensitive to that. We have... There there are all kinds of planning things out there for us to say, what is your plan for this and what is your plan for that? And, And I mean, the list goes on for us to plan and organize and think strategically. And we can think about all the things that we want for ourselves. We do that. And yet when it when we look here, we say, no, listen, comfort for Israel at this point seem to be the highest thing on their list. Comfort. I want to be comfortable. Don't send me out to war. I, want, I would rather be in bondage than in battle. 
That's kind of the picture. I just want a comfortable life. All I want for myself is to get to a point to where I could kind of like go out into the wilderness, live my life without anybody else involved in it, and never be bothered again. Just, I just want to perpetually live on the beach. But that's not the calling. His plans for us are not to live that way. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. To who? To animals? No. To the mountains? No. To our house? With the door locked? No. We are to proclaim these excellencies to not inanimate objects, in the sense of, like, we, we are to speak these to human beings. We are to be a light to the nations. So we have to be sensitive to His plans and not think so much about our comfort, but more about the glory of God and the good of others. Which leads us to the third thing. Seek to bring glory to God and, and serve others. Let your light so shine, is what Matthew 5.16 says, so that... People may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now the fourth thing. You might, because when you get down to that, you think, man, we fall short of that so often. We fall so easily into the trap that Israel and Samson seem so focused on. We need to realize that in spite of us, he is faithful to his promises. In spite of our tendency to choose comfort over like the pursuit of the mission of God that He has for His church, because we are so prone to wander from that, because we are so prone to be so disciplined about everything but our spiritual lives, we, and we become so insensitive to the purpose of God. Because that's the case, we have to stop and say, sometimes what you see is, is that in, over and over throughout Scripture, and even in our own lives, we look back, we say, the promises of God never fail. That's the great hope, is that all the promises of God have found their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All of them. And, and we hope in that. We hope in that because we know that God will be glorified. We know that Jesus did die for His church. We know that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that every tongue, tribe, and nation will, be, will show up together in the new heavens and the new earth because the nations will hear the gospel and people in every tongue, tribe, and nations will believe. But we need to participate in that. We do not want to write over our lives the story of Samson. We do not want to say at the end of our lives, listen, God used us, but He used us in spite of us. Over and over, God used us, but it was in spite of us. 
We were a disaster. We sought to do only for our own selves. We lived our whole lives with one focus, and that was for our own comfort, our own satisfaction in the moment, our own happiness in this present age, and we did not live to the glory of God. God used us, but it was in spite of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would give us a heart and a vision for living a life that is less concerned about comfort and more concerned about your glory and the good of others, about building your church, about understanding as In the book of Acts, Acts 13, where it says that they were, there were many of God's people in that city. So it fueled their heart for evangelism. God is drawing people we know from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We want to cooperate with that. We want our lives to be found, we want to be found faithful. We want to follow the life of Daniel or Othniel, not Samson, let us be people who pattern our lives after those who walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. If you would stand.